0: Welcome to the Localization Fireside Chat. I'm Robin Ayoub, your host. Join me for captivating conversations with industry leaders exploring localization, translation, and global communication. Ignite your curiosity as we expand your horizons through these conversations. So let's dive in together into the Localization Fireside Chat. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Localization Fireside Chat podcast, and YouTube channel. I'm Robin Ayoub, the founder of this platform. And for those of you who aren't familiar with me, you can check me out on LinkedIn. There's a lot of information about me on, on, the, on that platform as well. And happy to connect with you if we're not connected yet. Also today, I am very honored and I'm excited to have with me Kathleen Bostick. And uh, Kathleen and I have talked several times. We crossed a path at some point. We worked for the same company for a while. I don't know if you worked before me or after I came in, but we both worked for Language, and I still work for Language. You worked for Language as well. You have an impressive resume in the industry. I can't wait to dive into it. It's a coffee chat, so uh, no pressure. Just imagine us, both of us having a coffee at Starbucks and talking about the localization world. And this is what it is, what this conversation is about. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the episode, Kathleen. Glad to have you with me. And if you don't mind, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Robin, for having me. We've talked for years. We never met in person. So, one of these days, it's going to happen. Well, I've been in the industry for, oh, gosh, over 25 years. Let's put, just put it that way. And, you know, I, unlike a lot of people who started out as translators or linguists or always had a passion for language, I accidentally stumbled into the language industry. I, I was in the railroad industry. So when I graduated from college, got my MBA, my first job for my MBA was a corporate management trainee at Burlington Northern Railroad in Fort Worth, Texas, because I live in Dallas. And I joined their program and learned all about moving grain. And I was a coder. So I was coding SAS and COBOL, if anybody remembers those languages. <laughs> and I you do, yeah. And I, I worked my way up the railroad. I spent seven years, at Burlington Northern first, and then I moved to Southern Pacific in California. And at the height of my career, I was in Trains Magazine for the, it was called the Big Iron Ore Heist. And it was the largest deal in the history of the railroad. It was a $150 million deal moving taconite and, and coal across the railroad. So when I hit that point, I looked around one day and I was still in my early 30s. And I thought, you know what, this is it. You know, I was the most senior woman at the railroad, actually helped them write the dress code so that women could wear pants. And I realized that I didn't look like everyone else in senior management. And so it was time to make a move. So, and I was bored, you know, so I thought, okay, what's my next chapter? Back then, there were papers, newspapers that had ads. And there was an ad in the paper for a VP of marketing and sales for a company called ILE which everyone had acronyms that stood for International Language Engineering. And it was one of the early mom and pop startups. They were about 10 million. And I made the leap into the language industry through an ad in the paper. So just by happenstance, no, I took a pay cut to go in. I mean, and I just I, I, I ended up in the, the VP of marketing was the wife. So it was a husband and wife company. And they were big in the high-tech space. So HP, you know, back in those days, there was ITP, there was ILE, there was INTL, internationallanguage.com, Berlitz. So there were all those types of names that have gone by the wayside for the most part. And so I learned from the ground up, sitting in the VP of Marketing's office, how to do localization. And in those days, it was really translation memory had just come onto the scene and everyone was afraid of it nobody would knew what to do with it and so it was okay this was transforming the industry it reminds me a lot of what's going on now you know with with ai and we'll, we'll get to that but so she taught me very well but i also realized within about nine months i'd been used to the corporate world and that this mom and pop setup was a little bit of a challenge for me. So didn't I meet SDL at a STC conference, networking? That's another, you know, big theme that I'll have. And they said, hey, if you ever want to do something else, you know, let us know. We'd be interested in talking to you. Well, they weren't even in the US. They were $4 million. They had 40 people and they were a UK-based company. So one day on a whim, I messaged them and said, Hey, I'm interested. And the message got to the CEO, Mark Lancaster, who, you know, is a famous uh, founder in localization. And he said, are you sure she doesn't just want a free trip to the UK? (laughs) So so obviously that wasn't it. Um, So I made my way to the UK, interviewed with with them, and I became SDL's first US employee in 1996. And and my real aha moment, because I came from a company that had over 35,000 employees at the railroad, right, to a company that was kind of established in the U.S., to sitting in my home office one day and looking around going, okay, uh, nobody knows me and nobody knows SDL. And so if I don't pick up this phone and make cold calls, I'm not going to have a job. And so I looked at it that way. And the other way, I thought, you know what, somebody's funding my own business, So Mm -hmm. here I've got a salary and now I can make my own way. So that's really my start in the industry and how I got started with SDL. And, you know, I think when you're young, sometimes you just make impulsive decisions. And Mm -hmm. that was completely an impulsive decision. But I'm delighted to where it led me.
0: Well, you know, everybody tells me, you know, if you categorize the entire population of our industry from an employee perspective or business owner's perspective, the common thread that I hear is how accidental, you know, the transformation from one industry to the localization industry has been for them. And, you know, for me personally, it's the same idea. You know, I was, I'm not sure if I told you the story before I was coming back from a, a, a trip. I was in the tech business similar to you. And you were talking about cobalt know, I was coding in cobalt doing all that stuff. And I was coming back from a trip in the U S and the gentleman was sitting beside me on the plane, happened to run a small company. Called Lexitech International at the time, based in New Brunswick, Canada, and he convinced me to become his VP of Sales. And the company was tiny; it was like a couple of million dollars company. And here's me; I was working for a large conglomerate telecom company. So I took the dive, and maybe I had too much gin on that on that flight. <laughs> I have no idea, but <laughs> and the rest is history. That's 21 years ago. So yeah, you're right, and every so. You either go to university, you study, ling- you know, ling- you have passion for that since you were a kid, or you would probably drift to it or find your way to, to the industry through other means as you did and as I did, and as many other people have done. Now, throughout your history, throughout your uh, career, um, you've dealt with many uh, customers on the customer side, partner side, et cetera. And today, um, when we talk about global content, can you explain to the audience you know, the global content in, in terms of uh, how do we take a content from a local to global uh, and what are the benefits associated for taking co- uh, content to global?
1: So, you know, I mean, I think this is something that a lot of companies struggle with because they want to know what their ROI is, you know, and they they don't know. So they do their content in English and they hope. And you think after all these years and, all the the research out there, if you remember the long time ago, common sense advisory can't read, won't buy, right? And people realize, okay, you know what? If I'm going to go to Germany, I need to have my content in German. And that's really a pretty straightforward process. You know, we've I think we've all honed that pretty well between translate, you know, project managers, and then we've got translation memories, we've got style guys, we have machine translation that's you know, been trained for these companies. And I think it's a pretty straightforward process. But I think what's happening now is now that we've introduced AI into the mix, you know, it's kind of causing a some disruption. It's a disruptive technology, right? And so I don't know if any of us know actually where that's going to take us because we, we can't see into the future. But there's a lot of smart people out there in the industry that are diving deep into it and looking at how they can, use it in the process. And as a matter of fact, I just finished reading, Argos just put out a supplement to multilingual computing that's gonna be available at Loke World and also will be available, I think it's available online. There's a link right now. And it's all, it's under their Global Ambitions brand. And it's all about content and AI. And you probably know Tim Arada. Tim Arada has been around forever. Mm. He was at Apple for a long time as running their localization and MT. And he's got an article in there, which is really, really insightful. And it really talks about, you know we still are gonna need translators. We're still gonna need linguists. It's Mm -hmm. just gonna be up leveling their job. It's gonna Mm -hmm. be a new job. I mean, you still need people annotating data. You still need subject matter experts. You're still gonna need, it's just gonna be a, a higher level job than just taking text from English to another language. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I, I've started experimenting with some of the platforms out there. And sure. you know, I'd be interested to hear what, what you have to say. But uh, I am absolutely fascinated and blown away by what I've been able to mm-hmm. um, get out of them. But then I also see the downfalls.
0: That's right. So we've we had a conversation uh, yesterday at the ALC. And the question was, you know, what is the biggest threat to some of the association at the time? language industry associations and you know that I manage the uh, I'm the president of the Canadian Language Industry Association so in my capacity I was answering that particular question And one of them it was the the technologies that we are adopting right now and people are not yet fully understanding uh, the uh, risk and benefits of these technologies but they're jumping on the bandwagon before assessment proper assessment has been done and uh, basically that is creating a bit of a risk because yes, adoption, and and I'm not talking about our industry, I'm talking about the uh, consumer of our industry. So that would be the customers in this case. So adopting this technology too quick without proper assessment of benefits and and risks analysis, proper risk analysis on it, it's causing, uh, it's gonna cause damage. It's gonna cause damage in lowering the quality of the uh, communication, the content is being put out there, uh, be it uh, generated or translated, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's kind of cut corners in many aspects of how we communicate as a society, not just necessarily our c- customers. And uh, proper analysis and proper transformation and proper training to how you use these, con- these, these tools are absolutely necessary. And the potential for these tools is absolutely great. But you have to know how to use them. And if you use them in the wrong way, it's going to cause more damage, more harm than benefits. And that's gonna affect everybody in the in the wrong in, in the wrong intended consequences, obviously. Mm-hmm. Give an example, for instance, if you go to generative AI and you ask AI to write you an email and you cut and paste and put it into an email and send it without reading it and sending it out to somebody, it automatically can tell you it's full of mistakes, not necessarily mistakes linguistically, maybe, but maybe the context is missing, maybe the idea that you're trying to convey is not correct et cetera. So there is a, as you mentioned earlier, there's always a need for a human to be in the middle to review, to, to harness, to tweak, but it's a great assistance. Like I'm using them on a day-to-day basis. My productivity level is gone up tremendously, uh, but I'm always in the center of how I use these tools. And there's many of them out there. Uh, it's increasing productivity. It's allowing me to do more with less. Um, absolutely phenomenal if you use them in the wrong, in the right way obviously there is a right and wrong way to use any tool but it, this is this is the this is my uh, my my interpretation of it
1: yeah and i totally agree and you know the the prompt piece is fascinating on how you and i and i know there are some really good courses out there now um coursera has some courses on prompt engineering that some of my colleagues have taken and it's on my list to take because i think you know, we always have to embrace and learn new things, right? We can't be stuck in the mud and say it's not going to change. So, embrace what's happening. Okay, I'm I, I'm I'm late in my career, but I'm very interested in taking this class. And what I realize is how I ask it is really is how it results. So, you need a human to be first of all know what to ask, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for mm-hmm. example, I was uh, working on an RFP for um, a, a healthcare company, and so I asked I asked Chat GPT how can interpretation decrease costs and increase patient satisfaction in healthcare? That's a pretty complicated prompt. So I have to know what to ask, right? The answer was absolutely spot on, I have to say, incredible. But it was also had no personality to it, it was very factual. So it was a great piece to then add into the presentation and then humanize it with examples. And that's, that's how I found it very, very beneficial. And it cut down the time of me researching, how is this going to decrease costs to, okay, I've got this back in 30 seconds, and now it's going to take me an hour to build a presentation versus maybe four hours. So I'm, sure. I'm impressed with using it that way. But I don't think there's any possible way at this point in the foreseeable future that you don't need some type of human eyes on it as whether a subject matter expertise or even in the prompt piece. Maybe someday you can train the prompts, but right now you still need humans to do the prompts.
0: And if we turn it around a little bit and we take a look at, you know, these technologies and the impact of these technologies on enabling humanity to communicate more with their own language, I would imagine, and I don't know, it still needs to be proven, there's no reports on this yet, where we have content as as not just in English or in French or whatever demographic we're referring to, that because of lack of a human effort to translate, we don't have enough translators, everybody agrees to that. Now that with the tools that we currently have in place, that this specific content is now enabled to cheaply, my mind, you may not be as to the highest quality out there, but at least it conveys it into another language. So example, you're sitting on a reams of data sitting in a company A, and because of lack of resources, I don't have enough staff or I don't have enough translators to do the job. Now with, with AI, you are able to take that content and put it into another language and give people access to that content. Am I correct with that theory or this is out to lunch?
1: No, I, I agree with that. And, when, and you just hit on one of my hot buttons, which is language access. And not just in terms of translation, but in terms of I, my youngest daughter is deaf. So language access has been a challenge all of our life in getting an interpreter for her. Just access to language at the, t- at the table when there's a group of people and her being able to understand. So the, the, what I'm hoping is that this new technology is gonna allow people with disabilities such as deaf, blind, hard of hearing, that they can have easy access, so that they're on a bus and they're all of a sudden the bus driver is saying the next stop is so-and-so and and there's nothing written anywhere or they're on a plane and there's an emergency. She always has to ask the person next to her, hey, what did they say? Can you tell, I'm deaf, so can you help me understand what they say? All right, so if we can have automated real-time interpretation, you know, a text where you speech to text, reading it and understanding the message with good accuracy, that is not going to take anyone's job away that's just going to allow access to people who haven't had access you know and even even you know as far as like taking it to the next level when she makes a doctor's appointment the minute she asks for an interpreter all of a sudden those appointments are full which is just not appropriate it's not ada compliance right there's ways to 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 mediate that, but it's a real problem. So language access is something for everyone of any language that this is really important to help them with.
0: You know, I do I do believe that there is a huge amount of benefits on every facet of our lives with with AI, specifically when it comes to languages, you know, like in the education sector. I, I know I've talked to Carrie Fisher on one of the episodes, and one of the topic was teaching your kids languages at the early stage of their life and the impact that would have on their career down the road, on this society, on many aspects. And that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating topic as well. Most most North American kids, adults, etc., most of them they probably know one language. Now that demographic is changing with immigration, etc. But for the most part, most North America knows one language. And changing that enables a, a great deal of communication on a variety of levels, understanding of other cultures. Embracing other cultures, etc. Because once you understand something, you less likely to, you know, have misunderstandings about things. And the and the other thing too is AI is doing right now, and I and I I concur with you 100%. Is it's creating opportunities in our industry. So you know our industry views technology since the beginning of the day days, I guess since the 80s and 70s, as a threat. That's the immediate reaction that we, we have in in. But very few, they see it as an opportunity and they create an opportunity out of it. And then all of a sudden it's a business, it's a growing business opportunity. I interviewed Dal Zakowski from deepdub.ai and the sole purpose of this company is creating, took AI application, developed an AI application to take, you know, movies from the big studios in Hollywood and convert them and, you know, dub them to a sub-Saharan languages, otherwise, you know, the big studios are not going to be trans- you know, dubbing them to those languages. So using AI tool now that we have these entertainment mediums, if you will, accessible by hundreds of languages that, we did, that they did not have access to it before in their own language. I mean, right, which
1: is you know, amazing because it's, it, there's no ROI for, ROI for human translation. But when now you've got technology, you know, what's interesting so. is one of the industry events that I've been going to forever is Loke World. And I'm sure you've been to some. And I was the very first sponsor of Loke World when it was web globalization. Ulrich and his team have really built a, you know, a really great legacy in the language industry. But when, if you look at the Loke World that's coming up in a couple of weeks, all the sponsors are technology, language technology or technology companies. That is a huge shift. In the past, it used to be language services companies, but now you've got companies like Phrase, Intenso, XTM, all of them are up there and they've got some twist to AI integration that they're going to be talking about. And who are they talking to? Well, so what, 60% of the conference attendees are LSPs and then 40% on the client side. So everyone in that audience is their client.
0: Correct. And that's a quite, quite the dramatic shift, if, if, if I may, because in some of the local world, <clears throat> well, the uh, one I attended, it was in Montreal, I guess, quite a long time ago. I, noticed I remember I the, was there. <laughs> you were there. I remember you, remember you were there, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I remember the audience was completely LSBs. And you know the draw that we were trying to get is get more customers in so they can be engaged in a, in, a, in a more better conversation when it comes to how we, how we talk together. Now technology is coming in. But what has changed in between those, that time and now is our industry went through a financial transformation, meaning that our industry now is a lot of PE money is coming in. Uh, a lot of PE money is uh, private equity firms are coming in. And buying these companies and trying to improve them, uh, some people view the PE money. It depends on which side of the spectrum you uh, you're on in our industry. Some people view that aspect of the uh, of, of our invest of the investment money coming into the industry as negative. Some people see it as positive. I'd like to see the glasses half full all the time. So in this case, I'm finding that the PE firms has a great impact because it enabled us to think a little differently how we view our business from the inside out, meaning that we have to be more efficient we have to do more with less there are no m- not many people are going to university study linguistic degrees to the amount of what we need as a global as a global spectrum so i feel like what you just said about the amount of technology companies in our industry are direct result of somebody from outside coming in and saying you need to do better did
1: you see that it was just announced i think this week that there a, a tms that was originally called cordoba which I wasn't really familiar with, never had a lot of traction. They changed their name to writer.com and they got a hundred million in funding because they now they have a private cloud AI tech piece of technology with with AI. But I'm that's just mind-blowing. So all the you know, all the TMS companies, TMS has just become you know, it's, it's a TMS, right? I mean, it's become very generic. Everyone's got a TMS. It's just normal. How do you differentiate your brand? But these guys decided that, and it's, I think it's a, a female CEO and founder, decided that, you know, we're going to go this route and chase her name to writer.com and got into the content business. How brilliant is that? I mean, that's definitely something to watch. A hundred million. That's a huge investment.
0: And, and you bring a very good point because CSA Research says that we have about 19,000 companies, give or take. In the industry globally now that's you know the the old 80 20 rules always always there 80 20 80 percent of the business at the top 20 companies and the rest of them are smaller to medium-sized organization which is fine so if you were to say you know these companies are most of them are in the in the legacy space i would call it legacy space because that's in today's age there is the you know the old traditional way of doing things you know some people still prefer to do things in, the, in their own, in their own way, which is fine. and there is the adoption of new technology do things less, do things more, more of it. And there is a huge opportunity in that space yet to convert to do better and I talked to Michelle Lopez from e2F on one of these episodes and this is a specific example of how you take a company from your legacy services, to figure out what other services I can do with my organization and offer those services to the market and be, be profitable at it. You got to go where the customers pay money. And since I entered the, in, the industry, I always said, you know, if you're taking a project of any sort, the company is doing like some pharmaceutical company launching a website or brand new marketing campaign, etc., The amount of money they throw at this is huge. It's amazing, and meanwhile, the localization piece of it is a very tiny piece that goes that goes somewhere before publishing. So after we, after you produce what you need to produce, and you need to now, oh, we need to translate this. We need to put it in many languages. Okay, so you send it to localization. So let's say we, as an example, and I don't know, they spend hundred million dollar on a marketing campaign, and they spend you know a million dollar on translating it, or not even then, we're only getting one million out of a hundred. As that's this, that's the size of the pie for the industry. I think we should take a look at what else we can do. What else can we offer and increase the size of the pie? Increase the wallet share.
1: I, th- I think you're spot on with that. You know, one of my colleagues at, who's on the client side of the business, I actually mentored her a couple of years ago, and she's now with a, with a big client. And we were talking about how her job, she used to be on the LSP side and now she's on the client side and how unfortunately localization is a real fight for her to get to. Like she's got so many other things going on with the products that localization is still an afterthought. But if it's a part of the whole, we're going global, we're creating it, originally, go, knowing that German is where we're creating the content, right? That it's originally, so this whole AI piece, once we've got a, a data, a of data, right now we know JATGBT only has 20% in other languages, but once that's built out, that's something all the LSPs are going to help build out. We're doing data annotation, we're doing all those things, right, to get that content in there, then you're going to be have a much much better chance of creating original content in country versus having to translate it after after the fact but what she told me was she sees the project manager's role morphing into the data ai piece they can easily it's a very similar skill set right they're annotating data they're they're working with linguists linguists all over the world you know somebody still needs to say a dog is a chien in french somebody still needs to translate a border collie of a dog into the French border collie, somebody has to still annotate all those things. So those translators jobs are still very important. And then having the subject matter expertise in those areas, being able to add value of, oh yeah, I, I realize that this under the regulations, we can't actually say that in this country. So it could be generated by AI, but somebody still mm. has to have the expertise to say it works or not, right? So I think I, I I'm, really excited. And, you know, I talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about Loke World because um, I'm passionate about it. I've been going for so many years and I, I love it for two things. I love it for the content, but I love it for the people. Uh, the relationships that we build in this industry over the years are what keeps so many of us around for so long, you know, yeah. and and we change and we go to other LSPs, as we move around, but we're still friends. You know when mm-hmm. i when I left SDL, I was SDL for nine years the first round, and then I went to Lionbridge for eight. And I loved my colleagues at Lionbridge, but I'd run out of opportunity at Lionbridge, and it was time to go do something else. And so I realized sdl was was in a in a bad bad stage at that point. And I reached out to the CEO and I said, "You're not in any I haven't seen you guys in any RFPs lately." What's happening? I mean, you you're do you need somebody to come help you? I'm I'm happy to come help you help consult, but what's going on with SDL? Well, within two days, I had an offer letter to come back and run North America. And, you know, you have to make your own success, right? You have to be the one that makes things happen. So, so relationships. So I'm now at SDL, I'm running North America, I have operations, I've got sales, I've got a whole lot of stuff to clean up. And within a year though, I've got well, I want to say two years, 40 colleagues from Lionbridge over with me because we had such a great group of people, but they were looking for something that was going to excite them, something new. We, I like to fix things. You know, I like mm-hmm. if something's broken. If something's just running smooth and everything, get somebody yep. else. to do maintenance, Right fix yep. things. And people like to fix things and make things better and see something go from good to great. So I really believe the whole networking piece and the relationships that we have in the industry are so important. You don't want to burn bridges. And that's one of the reasons that I love some of the industry events, you know, like a local World. And mm-hmm. I do want to say something about my panel at local World, though. One of the areas that I've been really passionate about is women leadership. And, and I've I you know I've, it's probably my history. I come from a family of five girls, and we were all Eans. We were Maureen, Kathleen, Noreen, Eileen, and Colleen. so it's a good irish Irish Catholic family. My dad always kidded around and said the next two were going <clears be> to <throat> be chlorine and gasoline. Thank goodness we didn't have any more <laughs> right and then I have two daughters, and I have two granddaughters and so i've been I've always been aware of this kind of discrepancy in pay and you know status and all that and and at the railroad for example when I won that huge deal 150 million dollar deal my team and I the guy that was on the on the coal side I found out was making twice as much as me okay and so when I gave my notice that I was going to leave the industry and go to they magically matched the salary Uh, but that didn't matter you know once your brain you've already left you're there's no reason to go back and it's still the best decision I ever made but you know promoting women and leadership and and doing things that <clears throat> allow people to grow because let's face it, this industry, I have I have to look at the stats I I saw recently, but it's it's like something like 70% of the industry is women. We're talking about services, project manager, translation, all of those pieces. Yet at the top of all the the super agencies, there are no women CEOs running them.
0: Yep. Yeah. and you know that's that's a very valid point that you mentioned uh, there, Kathleen. Uh, the in this channel is uh, like uh, when I when I started, I I'm a big supporter of women in localization, and every time ta- every time I ch- chance I have or to get somebody on, I already had Carrie twice on, on on this channel, and always get to talk to her. It's and I don't know like why you know this is a longer debate as to why the inequality. I would say and the reason for the inequality, what is it? And I, you know, skills, they are the same. I just don't understand why there is inequality in this, but it is there. It exists. And we should absolutely stand up against it and, and make sure that people are equally treated. It doesn't matter what.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And I think it's it's up to those in senior positions and hiring positions. But so so I'm hosting a panel. I, I went to Ulrich and I said, you know, I think it'd be really fascinating to have a panel with women CEOs in the industry. Mm-hmm. Because there's only 18 of them in the top 100, and of those 18, I think—and my stats might be a little bit off—I've got CSA getting getting me the correct ones—but there's only two that were not founders. So it seems like the fastest way to be a CEO in localization is to be a founder of the company and or a co-founder, and you become CEO, right? Start something. Yeah, so two that are on my panel, Veronique Skaya, who I'm sure you've known, have been, and we we actually met at Lionbridge, and she's CEO of Argos. She's the only outside recruited CEO that has been a CEO twice. So she was first CEO at Language Wire. She started out as CRO and then became CEO. Sold that company and then was recruited to Argos. So she's CEO of Argos now, going on three years. Silka from Yonkers, she is an outside CEO recruited. I worked with her at STL. She ran EMEA when I ran North America. Well, she got recruited as an outsider to be a CEO. So she's on my panel. So those two women are on my panel. And then I've got Mila Galvina uh, from MasterWord, and she's actually a founder CEO. So I think it's going to be really interesting to have different perspectives, but I want to ask bigger questions, you know, is why do you have to be a founder to be a CEO? Why? I mean, it takes a lot of guts and hard work and something I never had to be a founder of a successful company. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different path, right? But coming Mm -hmm. in and being a CEO, being recruited is different. So why aren't more being recruited? And if I go back to the railroad industry, which I look at as, Like, way behind us, technology innovation of the class one carriers. There's five class one carriers, they have two female CEOs running this old school railroad industry. And here we are with no one in the super agencies as a woman CEO. So, I think part of it has to do with us, even us women hiring. So, for example, when I was at SDL, I had a phenomenal team and I knew I was going to retire and leave. And I had built up a great bench of VPs, they were all men. So I'm, I was part of the problem. I never even thought about that so I left. I had not recruited or hired any women to be in my succession plan. And so Natalie Kelly spoke on a webinar yesterday and she had that same realization at HubSpot. Her HubSpot team told her, we don't have any diversity on the team. Um, you're the only woman on the team. And she said, oh, wow. So we've I, you know that made me think too about what can could have I done to have helped in that. I mean you always want to choose the best person for the job, but are you looking at a big pool of candidates? Do you need to look at a wider pool of candidates? Do you need to recruit from the outside? Because I'm sure there were really good candidates that I could have put in one of those VP slots uh, to be a mm-hmm. successor. And so I think if we all Look at that as we talk about diversity and in equity, right? We look at that piece and say, okay, we've got five interviews, we've got two jobs. Let's see what we've got as candidates and purposely look for expertise in those areas. But anyway, I am, um, I always, I'm passionate about women leadership and how I can help them, you know, the next gen. I mean, We've got to get somebody in one of these super agency. Who's going to be the first one to have a woman CEO, right? <laughs> Who is
0: it? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, and I'm hosting a panel discussion on um, on global resources, and uh, that would be one of the topics we'll be tackling. I've got like four individuals participating in this. That's coming up, I guess, next week or the week after. I can't remember now. But yeah, this is a very important topic that we're going to continue to bring up to the surface here. So so we're coming to the end of our time on this on this chat, Kathleen. Excellent feedback and excellent chat with you. Always good to talk and, and exchange ideas. What do you like your final thoughts on this conversation to be for our audience? If somebody interested in reaching out to you, how do they do it? What kind of services you're offering to them? What would be of interest to somebody to call you?
1: So I, you know, right now I'm an independent consultant and I'm always available to, you know, I'm mentor. As, as just part of my goof back right I like to help women get to the next level so one of the things that really matters to me is helping other women and so I'm always available to do that and I'm always you know people can find me on on LinkedIn and at local world of course but I, I think one of the big takeaways is you know if you're in a if you're in a position or you're at a company and you're not happy you know you're in charge of your own destiny. And if, as Paulette Hedo from Royal Caribbean said in one of my pre, one of my uh, leadership presentations I had, if your boss doesn't think you're the best thing since sliced bread, go find a new boss. You know, you <laughs> are in charge of your destiny. If you're not happy, go do something that makes you happy. So that's how I'm going to finish. You heard it here first,
0: guys. If your boss <laughs> doesn't think that you're the best thing ever, go find a new boss. I go love that reverse bus. psychology. This is my best one I'm <laughs> For today I'm going to coin it. We that. all have choices, uh, right? <laughs> <you>. <laughs> we all have choices indeed. So thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. I hope you find time and to come back again. And always good to have you on, on, on this conversation, on this podcast. And always good to see you again. And good luck with Look World and everything else that you're doing. And wish you the best of success, Kathleen. Thanks. Again.
1: You too, Robin. I enjoyed it. And I hope to see you soon. Cheers.
0: Indeed. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Localization Fireside Chat. Take the warmth of knowledge and renewed cultural passion with you. Keep exploring. Stay curious. And until next time, this is Robin Ayoub. Keep those global conversations.